0: Uh, today, and we're not going to go through all of the chapter uh, tonight by any means, and we're going to take our time in this chapter, and we're going to look at each parable uh, in turn as listed here, uh, and uh, try and think about what the scripture what the Lord Jesus was teaching. But I want to begin in Matthew chapter 13, and verse 1 and we'll read down halfway through verse 3 and then drop our eyes to verse 13 and read down to verse 17. So let's begin in verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel uh, in chapter 13. It says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship. And sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables. Verse 13 Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand. And seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should hear them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Now we are in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. We've been in Matthew's Gospel uh, for some time. And this is a section of scripture, this one chapter, which contains the so-called kingdom parables. And so it really is one parable after another, beginning with the parable of the sower and the seed, which, Lord willing, we'll address next Sunday evening. But we've been going through the book of Matthew for some time now. And really, you come to this 13th chapter and you're brought to a critical point in Matthew's account. This is a turning point in the gospel, it's a turning point in Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees and the leadership of Israel. So let me very quickly tonight review with you where we've come from to get to this point. Remember, and it's easy to remember this because Christmas has just passed, chapters 1 and 2 you have the account of the nativity and in chapter 1 you have the genealogy of Christ laid out for you showing us that he is the son of David, and he is seen to be in the royal line. In chapter 2, the Magi, the wise men, arrive in Jerusalem asking, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Underlying the authenticity of Christ's claim to the throne of Israel. In chapter 3, John the Baptist, the forerunner, appears in the, and he comes in from the wilderness declaring, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the first of 33 references to the kingdom of heaven in the Gospel of Matthew. Why is that important? Because only Matthew uses this term. No other Gospel writer speaks of the kingdom of heaven. This is peculiar to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the Gospel that presents Christ as the King of the Jews. And of course, you cannot have a kingdom without a king. And so Matthew is making this representation of the Lord. In chapter 4, we read of the temptation of Christ. How the Savior, after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, overcame the temptation of the devil. In three areas which we feel in uh, as a matter of regularity, uh, where we, we feel in respect to the, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The Lord Jesus passed those tests uh, with flying colors. And so he shows that he has the moral authority uh, to be the king over Israel. And so and then we go into chapters 5, 6, and 7 and we looked at those in detail. We thought about the Sermon on the Mount. We saw how the standard for kingdom entry was far higher than anybody ever anticipated. That they thought if they could just get to the spiritual level of the Pharisees they'd probably be okay. But actually Jesus taught them that the Pharisees were falling short of heaven's standard for the kingdom and that they needed to put their trust in the word of God. And so we find in that chapter the conditions for kingdom entry and Uh, this is mirrored by Christ's judicial right to rule as king over Israel. Then we came to chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it was miracle after miracle after uh, miracle. And the purpose of this is to show his messianic authority, to show that he is uh, the one who has the power over nature, over disease, over demons, over death. And so the evidence is building. What you're, what you're having here is, a, is, a, is an amassing of evidence that is presenting to the Jewish people that Christ is their Messiah, and that they should accept him as such and that they should welcome the kingdom that he is offering him. And so offering them. So by the time you get to chapter 12, they, uh, they have a, a critical question in verse 23, asked by the people. They say, "Is not this the Son of David?" All this evidence is mounted up and they come to this point and they say to their leaders, is this not the son of David? Is this not the Messiah? Surely this must be the deliverer. This must be the promised one. He must be the savior. And what is the response of the Pharisees? The response is, no, he's not the savior. Far from it. He's an imposter. And everything he's doing, he's doing by satanic power. And when they make that statement, They fall into the unpardonable sin in their rejection of Christ as their Messiah and as their King. So at this moment, if the kingdom has been rejected, if the King has been rejected, the question arises, well, what now? Where do we go from here? What happens next? What's going to become of the kingdom? What's going to become of the king? And that's where Matthew chapter 13 comes in. Matthew 13 contains the kingdom parables. And over and over in this chapter, you find this repeated phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like And then the Lord tells us a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like... He says, you want to know what's going to happen to the kingdom? Let me explain to you what's going to happen to the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And the thrust of these parables is that the kingdom will come, but not just yet. He's now thinking about the cross. The kingdom is something he's putting aside in his mind. And the cross is what is in prospect. And what happens now is that a mystery is revealed. Something that was previously hidden to those in the past, to the prophets, to the Jewish people in history, is now being revealed uh, unto those who belong to the Savior. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says uh, unto them, "'Because it is given unto you, you who believe, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, to the leadership of Israel, it is not given.'" For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that that he hath. So once they had accused him of performing his miracles by satanic power, the Pharisees did a dreadful thing. They crossed a line with God. You ever in a position where somebody just crosses the line? They push the boundary. They overstep the mark. Sometimes our children do that. Sometimes you give them a word of warning and then they push the boundary and you have to step in and you discipline them. Sometimes grown men and women do that with God. God says, here's the line. Here's the the bottom line. This is what it's about. And people ignore the boundary and overstep the mark and they get into trouble with God. And that's exactly what happens with these Pharisees. Do you know that you can make it to where a person uh, may never again understand the gospel? That God can make it such that a person who's heard the gospel time and time and time again is now shut down to the gospel and have no further opportunity for salvation. That's a dreadful place for a person to be. Sometimes, and I'm sure those of you who have witnessed at all, and I hope you've all, all of you who believe have witnessed, uh, you know, you're witnessing and you share the gospel with people who are clearly intelligent people. Uh, people who hold responsible jobs and and have you know uh, res- have good qualifications and you know there's nothing in them or no reason why they cannot accept the truth of what you're saying, but they just don't seem to get it. You ever been with somebody like that? You know, I've witnessed people who are architects, people who are lawyers, and they just don't seem to get it. And yet, you, you maybe have a holiday Bible club and a child comes out and he's five or six years of age and he wants to be saved. You know, our lady saw this in Kenya from last week. We saw some of the pictures of children who trusted Christ, little boys, little girls who trusted Christ. And those little Kenyan kids got it. When the gospel was shared with them, they got it. They understood their need. They responded. They came away from their playtime and they asked how they could be saved. And it was told to them how they could be saved. And they trusted Christ. But you meet these people who are intelligent, educated people. People who hold down responsible positions in society. And you share the gospel with them blank. They don't get it. And you wonder what's going on here. After all, it's a very simple message, isn't it? It's just a matter of acknowledging my sin before God and believing in Christ's ability to save me. It's saying to God that I know that I am a sinner and that Christ is the Savior. It is saying I believe that Jesus died for me was buried and rose again and that his death is enough and i place my trust in him that's how easy it is to be saved it's as easy as opening a door it's as easy as switching on a light it's as easy as eating a piece of bread there's many things that you could liken it onto it's very simple to be saved but i hear smart people say oh but that's too simple no 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 that's too easy no, it can't, be, it, can't be that, it can't be that easy. It's got to be harder than that. Or they'll say things like, well, I, I would believe, but I don't think I could keep it. Or, or they'll say, well, I, I'd never be able to live up to it. And you know, when somebody says a thing like that, they don't understand that. I'd never be able to live up to it. Because there's nothing to live up to. Christ has done the living up to that's what the whole of the Sermon of the Mount is about, that nobody lives up to it. And so you say, well, what is wrong with these people? Well, of course, many of them are subject to spiritual blindness. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 and 4 uh, speaks of Satan as the god of this world who has blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the, glor- lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in onto them uh, and, uh, and they be saved. And yet it could be for others that having rejected Christ so often and for so long that their heart is, even as verse 15 portrays it, waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. You know, I think that's the problem in Ulster tonight. I think that's the problem in Northern Ireland tonight. The people now are dull of hearing. They've heard it all before. they don't want to know and many of them won't be saved and some of them and I'm going to say this carefully can't be saved because they've crossed a line with God isn't that tragic and that's where we are tonight. The Lord Jesus spoke of these Pharisees and he said, Their heart is waxed close; their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand that their heart with their heart and should be converted, that I should heal them. And so he began to speak in parables. In other words, he closed the message down to them and he opened the message up to those who would believe. In other words, they are what we might say, in theological terms, they are people who became reprobate, beyond redemption, beyond hope. A terrifying thought tonight—that your soul could be beyond hope, that your eter- eternal destiny is settled already, and even if you were to cry out unto the Lord, He would not hear you. You say, I don't believe that's possible. You need to go back and read Proverbs chapter 1. It's very much uh, possible. And there are cases in scripture that highlight this awful condition. And I want to think about uh, two or three of those this evening. Let's think about the case of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, if you will, please. Exodus chapter 11. And notice verse 9 and 10. Notice the words of the Lord to Moses. Sobering words. Somber words. Sorrowful words. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And notice this. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now you know the story and I know the story well. For 400 years, the Hebrews dwelt in the land of Egypt. Much of that time, they were slaves. They came at first as guests, but by this point in time, they have been uh, held in the land. They are subject to slavery. They're forced into labor because this king arose that knew nothing about Joseph and uh, was concerned at the presence of this shepherding tribe, this shepherding nation within an eastern nation, Was a threat to the security of his own kingdom. And so he enslaved them and he sent them out to make bricks for the purpose of building the great monuments and projects of the Egyptian empire. And little by little, the screw was tightened. Every day, life became harder and harder uh, for the Israelite people until at last, God raises up a savior, Moses, who would deliver this people and lead them out of that land into liberty and into the land of promise. But as that conflict was about to unfold, God, in calling Moses to lead the Exodus, says an interesting thing. Let's go back to chapter 4 of Exodus. Ever before the action begins, God predicts what will happen. Chapter 4 and verse 21, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return unto Egypt... See that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart that he shall not let the people go. Notice God's prediction that there would come a time when he would intervene and he would harden the heart of Pharaoh. You see, God knew Pharaoh in advance, he knew the kind of man that Pharaoh was and he had foreseen the response that would come from Pharaoh in respect to the miracles and the plagues and the demand of Moses to release the slaves. So the Lord predicted a day coming when he would harden Pharaoh's heart, and that's exactly what happened. Now, time prohibits us tonight from really going into much detail on this story. But if we were to read the account of the Exodus, we would find that nine times in Scripture it is said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Nine times Pharaoh hardens his own heart and an equivalent number of times it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now if you look at the the process of that you'll find that Pharaoh hardened his own heart ever before the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, his, his heart was waxing gross. There was this build up of resistance to the things of God. Until the Lord steps in. Now let's take a, take a look at this. Let's go to Exodus chapter 8 for a moment. And look at verse 15. And this verse comes. Hot on the heels of the plague of frogs. And now Moses now has prayed on behalf of Pharaoh. And the land has been cleared of the frogs. In verse 15 it says. And when Pharaoh saw that there was respite. Notice what it says. He, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, unto Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. Let's look a little bit further down this chapter into verse 19. And this is uh, after uh, another, uh, the fifth, uh, the fifth uh, plague, the, turning the dust into lice. It says in verse 19, Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Look in verse 32. It says, And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So constantly it is Pharaoh hardening his heart, Pharaoh hardening his heart. You know, of all the characters in the Bible, few could possibly have been more intransigent, more stubborn as this Egyptian Pharaoh. He was so difficult. He was so proud. He was so obstinate. He would not bend to the will of God. And in the end, God refuses to deal with him. Now, it isn't that he wasn't given the chance to believe. It wasn't that God didn't give him opportunity to let the people go. God gave him chance after chance after chance to make things right. In fact, at certain times, Pharaoh even recognized his own sin, and it looked like he might just do the right thing, but then he pulls back. And he hardens his heart. So after reading over and over and over that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, we come to this critical point in Pharaoh's experience when a subtle change takes place and we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look in chapter 9, if you will, and verse 12. Here's the plague of boils. It says, and the magicians could not stand before uh, Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Chapter 10 and uh, verse 1 of this book. And the Lord said unto Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the heart of his servants that I might show these my signs uh, before him. And then if you look further down that chapter to verse 20, it says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. You see, here's what happened. Pharaoh crossed a line with God. He overstepped the mark. There came a point where God said, that's it. I'm done with you. Now I'm going to harden your heart. Now I'm going to confirm you in your sin. Now I'm going to make it difficult for you, indeed impossible for you, to be saved. There comes a point where God's mercy is withdrawn from this man. And no longer is he he someone who has the opportunity of grace but he is someone who is under the judgment hand of God. And all that is left for this man at this point is certain ruination at the mighty hand of God. Have you ever considered the possibility that that might be your lot? That such a thing could happen to you? Listen to me. You could be a person who grows up in church. There's plenty of people like that in our country today who grew up in church who came to gospel meetings who heard preachers preach the way of uh, of life eternal and who rejected it again and again and again there was a time when the spirit of God spoke to their heart there was a time when they came under conviction there was a time when they felt the impulse to believe but now nothing, deadness is that where you are tonight? That the gospel never moves you, never shakes you, never makes any impact upon you. I want you to go back to the previous book in our Bible, to the book of Genesis chapter 6. And I I want you to see a second case study. The case study of the people in Noah's day. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it says... And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all who they choose. Now watch verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years you see what happened to the people of Noah's day? They were in danger of crossing that line with God. In fact, God gave them 120 years to sort themselves out. He says that their days would be 120 years. Now, that's not the age of their lives. That's the period of time that they have left before the flood comes. Because God instructs Noah, a preacher of righteousness, to build an ark, a mammoth, and indeed a curious structure for its time. I've shared with you before that I've seen the replica ark uh, built in uh, Kentucky, northern Kentucky, in the ark encounter that uh, the Answers in Genesis people have uh, constructed this, this uh, replica of uh, Noah's Ark, using all the dimensions and so on that we find in Scripture. And, and, you know, it really is a breathtaking thing uh, to see. Uh, Some folks were asking if we could maybe go there someday, all of us, uh, go there and see that. Maybe we'll do that. You never know. But uh, that's not a promise. But anyway, uh, but, you know, it'd be a wonderful thing for you to see if you had the chance to see it. Because it's striking, you know, you're driving along this highway in America and you just look over to the left and, and you see in a distance, about maybe a half a mile away, a mile away, you see this great big boat just sitting on the horizon. And you're struck by it. And surely people in Noah's time would have been even all the more struck by it because at this point they hadn't even seen rain. Rain was not part of their experience. And so here's a man building a boat in the middle of land and miles away from sea. And and yet with all, they're wondering, well, well, what's he going to do with that thing? Where's he going to go with that? It was a curiosity to them. And Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, began to explain to them why it was that he was building this ark. And how it was that God commanded him to build such a, a large vessel. And he told them that there was opportunity for them to get into the ark and to escape the judgment that was coming. But they failed to listen to the preacher. 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. But, you know, how long exactly Noah preached for, I don't know. But the implication is that he preached for some time, if not for the entirety of that 120 years, warning the people of judgment to come. And yet many of his neighbors, you know, when they looked at that, they'd respond, how many of them got into the boat? None. And that was the thing that struck me when I went to the Ark Encounter. And they have this ramp. Of course, it's, a, it's something of a tourist attraction. And people come from miles around. In fact, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's one of the top tourist attractions right now in the United States. And people come from near and far to see it. And, and as you're going into it, there's a whole queue of people. There's a line of people walking up this ramp, zigzagging up this ramp, up into the Ark. And as I was walking along that, that ramp and heading up into the ark, I, I, the thought occurred to me that when the original ark was on earth, its people walked that ramp. Just eight people. Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives. It was a pitiful response. It was an appalling rejection of the truth. Of God. And how come those people didn't get into the ark? Did they think they were smarter than God? Smarter than God's man? You know, friends, listen to me. When a person gets into that sort of place, when you come into that state, there's a real danger that God stops speaking to your heart. And when that happens, you're done for. You're doomed. Proverbs 29.1 puts it this way. He that being often reproved, Hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. This is one of the reasons that a man must not go on saying no to God. He runs the danger of hardening his heart, of crossing that line with God. You know, um, Alistair touched on this this morning when he was speaking to the boys uh, and, and girls the fact that, you know, many people get saved early in life, and the older you get, then the less likelihood. Of that conversion experience taking place. And the Barner Research Group looked into this and they said that 64% of all born again believers uh, trusted Christ before their 18th birthday. 64%. 13% made their professions between the age of 18 and 21. And after that, the percentages fall decade after decade until it's almost negligible by the time that a person gets into their 70s or their 80s. It's very unusual for someone of 70 plus or 80 plus years of age to trust Christ. In fact, I have sat with people of that age group in hospital beds, on their deathbeds, who have cursed me to the face. When I spoke to them about their soul. You see, over the years, the heart hardens to the truth. And with the passage of time, the heart becomes less and less likely to respond to the word of God. You know, if you've ever done street preaching, and I've, done, I'm not, a, I've not done a lot of street preaching, but I've done a little bit of street preaching, particularly when I was in Stoke, I did a fair bit of street preaching And, uh, you know, on occasions, there would be people who would heckle you. And there would be people who would be abusing you in the street. Now, here's the interesting thing. The most people who abused us were older people. It wasn't the young people. The young people were often willing to politely listen, to engage you in debate, to discuss with you. But the old people, the old people would hurl abuse at you. The old people would curse at you on the way past. They would snarl and and sniff at the gospel. What's going on there? What's going on is that God is no longer dealing with such people. You see, if God is not, if you feel that God is not dealing with you, here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you get alone and you plead with God to deal with your soul. I beg him to speak to you. See, if you're hearing the gospel again and again and God's no longer dealing with you, you're in a terrible place. And that's what happened with the Pharisees concerning Jesus. They ignored the occasion of his birth. You remember that? Herod calls them in. How's these foreigners, these men who come from Persia looking for the king of the Jews. And he says to them, do you know anything about this? And they say, yeah, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And they quote the prophet, how that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And yet, when the Magi move on to the nativity scene, the Pharisees remain in Jerusalem. So from the outset, they ignored the occasion of his birth. When John the Baptist came, they resisted the preaching of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. So he chases them almost from that scene. They bristled their way through the Sermon on the Mount. You see true preaching either makes you right with God or makes you mad at the preacher. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned it was making them mad. They denied miracle after miracle. And some of those miracles we've looked at. The healing of the leper. The healing of the centurion's son. The healing of Peter's wife. The stilling of the storm. The healing of the palsied man. The healing of the woman with the issue of blood. The Raising of Jairus' son. The evidence was mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting, but they wouldn't hear it. Jesus says, I'm not talking to those people anymore. From here on, I'm going to speak in parables. So that even though they'll hear what I say, they won't actually hear what I say. So that even though they see me preaching, They won't actually see and understand what it's about. Because I don't want them to be converted at this point. I don't want their heart to be healed at this point. No, it's for you. For you who have surrendered to the gospel to know these truths. And that's where Matthew 13 opens up. But as we close out this evening, I want to just focus your mind on this central truth. You know, I have flown, I don't know how many times to how many places in my life, and many of you have also. And every pilot and every passenger knows that when you're on an aircraft, it's the taking off and the landing that is the most dangerous part of the flight. And every pilot knows that there's a time during the takeoff procedure that is called the point of no return. Now there's no physical line on the runway. There's nothing on the runway that says this is the point of no return. But I think you get a sense of it when you're on the aircraft. You know that aircraft starts hurtling down the runway and I'm not sure what speed it gets up to I imagine it's something like 200, 250 miles an hour something like that and it's hurtling down the runway and you start to feel it shaking and you sense that it's about to fall apart when it suddenly lifts up. And so when you get to that point, it's a point of no return. Uh, The pilot knows it's there. He knows that it's just before takeoff. And at that point, the aircraft is going at such a speed that it must reach for the sky Otherwise, it's going to crash. And and the plane has to be airborne, even if there's an emergency on board. Even as you're hurtling down that runway, if someone on the aircraft would take a heart attack at that moment, the pilot would not hit the brakes. He would continue into the sky, and then he would turn around and see if he can land to get that person off the aircraft. But he cannot stop at that point. In other words, there comes a point where it's completely out of his control. It's all out of his hands. And so it is in salvation, friends. There's a point of no return. And there's a moment when all the decision-making might well be removed from you. The opportunity is gone. And that's what happens to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. And it happened to the people of Noah's day and it happened to Pharaoh. And here's the dire warning: it could happen to you. It could happen to you. And what I want to say to you tonight as we, as we close is this: don't mess with the things of God. Don't mess with the gospel of God. Be saved today. Behold now is the accepted time behold now is the day of salvation may god bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening